Uh, hello, and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hulger. I got big news for you, Stephen. Yeah? They brought Mario back, this time, three <laughs> dimensions. There's going to be a new one. No one thought it was going to happen. They Dude. thought Mario is toast. Leave him in the 90s. He had his heyday. Not only is he back, but he's got height, width, and depth this time. Traversing 3D worlds, 3D lands, and Bowser's Fury. <laughs> Overall for this show, I have found that when we enjoy a game, it's usually pretty easy to talk about. But there is sort of an X and Y axis of like how much we've enjoyed the game and how much it will be interesting to hear a discussion about it. <laughs> and Mario is like completely flipped from the usual formula. Like yeah, yeah. us really liking a Mario game is like hearing the Wind. Like, what can we possibly say that will be engaging or fun? But I actually do think that something we've been doing kind of on our own that I think is leading into this segment is talking about Mario as a series, kind of like bird's eye view, looking at yeah. like moments in history. We do have a bonus where we talked about the 3D All-Stars when that was released temporarily. Uh, that was one of the weirdest <laughs> business decisions Nintendo has done. But so for a limited time, you can get Mario on your Switch. Uh, they released Mario 64, uh, <laughs> Super Mario Sunshine, and Mario. Uh, Mario Galaxy all in one place should have yeah. been like a really awesome celebratory thing. And it was like, it was cool to get it, but like it, it I think it was kind of soured by that. Like you have until March 31st to get this. Right. But regardless, we talked about all three games as a bonus with friends and family. It was a really fun time. And I think the focus of that episode was like, what is your experience with these games? It's something that we, that we, I think like talking about in general, but I think with Mario so often it is someone's like entry into games. So they have like a very specific childhood memory with it. So that was sort of the focus of that episode here. I think it'll be a little bit more analytical, but I'm excited to share our experience with various 3D Mario games. <laughs> well, yeah. So the, the big impetus for this was uh, I took off a day last week as of the time of this recording and was like, I want to stream something. I've been away. I've been doing like San Diego Comic-Con stuff for a while. Um, I've just been like so, so busy that I hadn't had any time to stream or make anything for the YouTube in a long time. I was like, what game would feel like very low key to play in the middle of my day off that I maybe like had on the backlog and never checked out. And it occurred to me that I had never played Bowser's Fury, which was the like pack in game yeah. or like pack in like side content. I hate to use the word content in this in this case, but it's kind of what it was. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not quite deal. It felt like a DLC pack that should have come out when 3D World originally came out. But it was like in retrospect, kind of it's it's a weird, just like stuck in time outside time situation, I think, with this game. So the whole thing for me was that maybe maybe I'll be I'll be honest here. Maybe I was a little bit resentful that instead of everyone finally playing Super Mario 3D World because it was, you know, locked to the Nintendo Wii U, so pretty much nobody played it at all. Maybe I was a little bit resentful that when they finally released it for the Switch and it should have had this big shining moment and maybe other people would join 
the the what is currently a solo performance and turn it into a choir <laughs> of me saying hey this is the best mario game instead they packaged it with this other thing called bowser's fury which is like a, a an open world mario experiment i would say yeah that's which, a good pitch which i think kind of uh, cast this shadow over 3d world because everyone was just more curious about what's going on with bowser's fury and a lot of the questions were like should I buy this to play Bowser's Fury and not should I buy the best Mario game now that it's on the Switch? The answer yeah. is yes to that. Should you buy it for Bowser's Fury? That's kind of up to you. What was interesting was when it came out, uh, I remember you played it and you were kind of lukewarm on it. I remember y- your your take on it, if I recall correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was like, this is really fun. There's a lot of cool ideas here. What's not working is the Bowser's Fury of it all. Is like there's there's yeah. this conceit. Uh, if you if you haven't played it, there's this idea that you are Mario. You're running around this open world, and and as you're continuing to do that, and we'll get more in the weeds as to what that means. But as you're continuing to do that, every once in a while, at random, maybe not at random, I'm not really sure. Bowser, who is covered in ink and is like kaiju sized will rise out of some like black goopy gop and he'll get so fucking mad and he'll try and kill you and you have to fight yeah. back or avoid death um, and the final fantasy 10 boss music plays and yes. it's like yeah we're here we're in hell baby yes and it will just happen like completely at random you could be in the middle of trying to get a star at the end of a level you could be just trying to traverse the open space you could be making it from point a to point b you could be in the middle of a time trial and bowser's going to show up and he's going to ruin it for you but that is kind of the conceit of the game is like you have this one half that is this very interesting experiment you and i i remember pontificated a bit about like is this just kind of laying the groundwork for what they want to do eventually with mario odyssey and then you have this other half which is like wouldn't it be funny if uh mario got the cat suit and then got a giant cat suit and then his hair looked like goku's hair and then he fought bowser and it was like a big kaiju battle uh which is like a completely different video game that they like grafted into (laughs) this completely different video game which is grafted onto the best mario game (laughs) yeah i want to be clear two points here i am definitely the outlier for being like lukewarm on it because i think pretty much everyone i know loved bowser's fury and is like desperate for a continuation of that idea the other is that i think with nintendo like i'm always excited to see them take wild swings Because whenever they do, even if it doesn't fully land, it's going to create cool ideas in the future. Yeah. And that's kind of how I saw Bowser's Fury. I think it's a really cool proof of concept because the central pitch, I would say, is like level. Usually in Mario, there's like distinct levels. If I had to sort of like broadly dissect like Mario games as a type, Mm -hmm. there's usually like point A to point B Mario games and those are the levels and that could either be like a truly left to right Super Mario World experience or it could even be like a Mario Galaxy where it is a little bit more open but like there's a kind of set obstacle course or even like Disney ride for you to go on and while you can navigate within that there's like a beginning and an end right then there are sort of the like free roaming soak it all in mario games which i would consider like mario 64 and mario odyssey and also mario sunshine to be more about like there are worlds and there are goals within that world and it's usually about finding things and and overcoming challenges within that world than it is like a really set 
course. Yeah. But even even with those games that you just mentioned, I, th- I think the important distinction here is like you're still in this overworld in Mario 64. You're in Peach's Castle. You jump into a painting and you select the star that you're going to go after. And you can sure. deviate from that. Every, like, you know, the eight red coins, for example, like you could go find those and then like, whoa, shit, I found a different thing instead of the thing that I was supposed to be doing. And then you jump back into the painting and then you try and get the one that you're going for. The, the way that I would describe Bowser's Fury in terms of the way it's set up is like, what if those different worlds worlds from all of those paintings were all connected and we're all in the same space. You're not jumping into a painting. You can traverse through all of those different spaces simultaneously because they're all one, which is a really cool idea. Yeah. And when you like, when you encounter like a space that will catch your eye, it will show you like, you know, world one, one, like it won't Mm -hmm. stop the action, but it will tell you like, this is a discrete area that you've stumbled into. Right. And I think that idea is like, I want them to run with that. And again, it's, it's still a blast to play. The things that hold the back for me are like you mentioned i don't love the bowser shows up part i feel like it's the game attempting kind of a blood moan idea like in breath of the wild yeah, this right. is kind of lingering threat it's fine and like there is some cool stuff for like when bowser shows up it does affect the area so like, there are some like parts of locations and items that will only function or appear when bowser is like right. throwing lava on them so that's kind of interesting but like the actual like leading up to the boss fight against bowser like i don't really enjoy those fights like at all mario is never really known for his boss fights weirdly enough though odyssey does have some great bosses yeah it does so like I just think like having to do that over and over again, it's not a huge deal because it's, it's so funny. Like the spectacle of seeing giant Mario and Bowser. Also weird when Mario loses power and becomes little Mario, but he's still giant. I right. like that yeah. uh, energy. <laughs> that's whatever for me. But, you know, that's not why you're playing it. You're playing it for this like fun open world approach. The one aspect, though, that for me holds it back is that it is using the... 3D World's control scheme that is more designed for like a set course platforming game than like a you can roam around. And it feels weirdly limiting because if this played like it feels more akin to Odyssey than it is 3D World. Totally. So I think that like the physical act of exploring and jumping on things doesn't feel quite as loose, even like by comparison, Mario 64, which allows you to kind of like parkour off stuff. This has a little bit of like a tighter feel. Yeah, there's to a rigidity it. to it. Yeah, I'm totally with yeah, you. Yeah, so I think that like. It seems like when they release this game, they're like, why don't we mess around in this engine and make like a cool experiment, which I'm glad they did. Yeah. But I think the actual concept of the game fits better in a different control scheme. And it's very like these are very subtle things. But I think if you were to play Odyssey and then jump into Bowser's Fury, you would notice a difference in feel. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that I don't it doesn't need to be a back and forth because I don't find that very interesting. But I'll just say that the Bowser yeah. stuff really does work for me. I really think it's I, I think it's really fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, But I can like just having played a breath of nintendo titles especially like first party nintendo stuff you can just tell that somebody went to somebody else maybe it was miyamoto who knows you know somebody showed up in miyamoto's office and was like we want to do a pack-in added content thing for 3d world when it comes to the switch and our big idea is that it's going to be an open world and we can use this as a test bed for what odyssey 2 is going to be it's going to be great and miyamoto said that's not enough there needs to be a hook what is the hook going to be why is this (laughs) happening you know and because that's like such a nintendo thing it's such a nintendo thing to say like no 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 no. like what what is the like 
to the player. Like we we can't go and make an ad for this pack in content for 3D World that says it's the first ever open world. Market. That's like not how they do. It. That's like an Apple ad for an iPod with more storage space. You know, like <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't make any yeah. sense. They need to be like, no, no, no. You're a kaiju Mario and you're fighting a kaiju Bowser. Like that's that's what you say in the ad and that's what sells the thing and it's great. But I just remember the lead up to this. You and I had no fucking clue what this game was because that yeah. was all they showed over and over again. It and led then, with giant Goku cat Mario. Yeah. Right. And you can see how that would be appealing to like people who are not 30. Like I get that. Like if, <laughs> if, if you're like eight years or old. Or specifically to people who are 30. <laughs> I feel like if you have a strong attachment to DVZ. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great point. Um, Yeah. But, you know, if you're like eight years old and you see that, you're like, I want to play that. That's going to be sick. You know, I I totally get that. All that having been said, like, I see why they they put that element in this game. I totally get it. But I am so with you, even though that stuff is working for me. The actual open world exploration stuff is so interesting and it's so cool. And it so feels like the future to me for this franchise that I I just like aided. Like, I just need more immediately. I'm like almost yeah. done with it already. Like I I've, I played that bit on the stream. I played like I think like two or three hours and I played like another two hours after that. And I'm just like, I love it so much. I think it's so interesting. I can't stop looking for secrets. I can't stop like just trying to finish that thing. But I also agree with you that it's so weird. And this is kind of what I meant by saying like it feels like it's stuck out of time for some reason because it's so strange that it they would add this to the 3D world engine. Like I understand again the business necessity of saying like we want to add this thing onto 3D world. We need like some kind of pack-in content so people aren't just like yelling at us for re-releasing a Wii U game again because it's a thing they do a lot to be clear yeah. you know but that having been said this should have been Mario Odyssey DLC and I think everyone kind of expected Mario Odyssey DLC I think I think the big like toss-up was like is it gonna be a DLC or are they just gonna make a sequel um because it just feels like a kind of Mario game that will get a sequel eventually and it's so strange to see what I would consider to be the Mario Odyssey DLC grafted onto 3D World where it doesn't really fit very well because I, I agree with you the reason that it doesn't fit very well is because that platforming feel is made for smaller, discrete levels that are chasing after ideas, which is what 3D World and another game that we were maybe going to talk about a little bit, 3D Land, which I kind of find to be like siblings to one another. Um, totally. That's, that's kind of what they're all about. It's just these like quick hits of like really brilliant fucking creative ideas. It's I, I, th- I think it's like peak Nintendo. It's like peak Mario design is just like, let's see how quickly we can get you into and out of this idea. Like how quickly can we teach you this concept and then take it away from you so it'll show up, you know, four worlds later and you already know what to do. But it's going to be harder. Like that's really cool and does not really find itself to be conducive to I can jump on the back of a dinosaur and like surf around islands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a bit more of a uh, of an Odyssey vibe. Yeah. Another aspect of Bowser's theory that I think is really great is they've one up the idea of like saving a power for later. Because like in a lot of Mario games, dating back to Super Mario World, like if you had, you know, a mushroom and then you found like a fire flower and then another fire flower or like something else, you would like keep the excess item like in a bank to yeah. like use at any point later. Essentially like saving a Tetris block. Like like you, yeah, you, get, right. the, you get the straight line block and you're like, I'm going to hold on to this until I can get a Tetris. Yeah. Is that what they call it? Do they say getting a Tetris? <laughs> I love the idea of just yelling Tetris whenever I, you get I think that's what blocks. flashes on the screen when you get it. I think it says Tetris. Yeah. But is that what like pro Tetris players say? <laughs> or like, dude, I got a Tetris. Dude, I got a Tetris. Let me, I'm going to, is Tetris a word like independent of the game? I'm looking this up right now. I think it's got to be at this point, you know, the way like Band-Aid is. Maybe not. Maybe that's I think, I not. Think it, 
it's a it's a word now post the game existing but yeah prior to it i think it was like maybe a very basic like prefix for something but uh anyway in bowser's fury uh you can there's a whole bottom screen of like every power up you have so you can kind yeah. of just like save a bunch it's almost like almost like a zelda kind of approach of like having items at the ready which i think if you're going to make an open world mario that is a great thing to do because like even in bowser's fury you might encounter areas that are clearly marked for cat mario to navigate and it would be frustrating to have to like either you can put the power up right there mm. which kind of eliminates the like player connection to like that moment of discovery or you can have it somewhere else but then it's tedious because you have to like go back to get it and then back to the place so yeah. just having it ready to use whenever is such a great idea yeah because that way you can be like oh i need to use this here much like you would you know in breath of the wild you would use like a, a bomb or the ice tool on something mm-hmm. but yeah there were just a few confusing elements for me that didn't like come together but i'm with you too like i love 3d world and it weirdly doesn't i it's like again it's weird to say about any mario game but i do think it's underrated because i think you know one it was on the wii u like you said and two i think just the title of it implied that it was like nothing against the like new mario brothers line yeah. of stuff but like i feel like it came off like that rather than this is the next mainline mario game totally in addition, you know, there was four player co-op and you could each play as different characters, yeah. which also feels kind of like a, a new Mario Brothers feature. But honestly, it works so well. I, I primarily play as Toad, which is maybe not surprising, but I feel like <laughs> just I love that addition and how they all play differently. And like, yeah, playing this co-op and trying to get through like really tough levels. This game has a difficulty spike pretty early on, yeah. which is like maybe almost too much. But I'm with you in that like this is really like. Like, I don't think it's as monumental of a step for the series, which is the only reason I wouldn't put it higher if I were Mm -hmm. to rank all the Mario games. But I think it's like one of the best executions of level design and of like, we know how Mario works so well. Here's like a masterclass of Mario levels. And it, it does kind of retain the feel of the 2D ones and the 3D ones. It's, like, it's kind of like a meshing of all worlds, which is cool. Yeah. What's interesting, like that actually, that point is, I, I think, even more prevalent in 3D Land, which is the, the 3DS kind of yeah. mainline Mario game that they made. That, that I mean, speaking of like weirdly forgotten, underrated Mario games, <laughs> that is like super one of them as well. Um, 3D Land to me really feels, it, it's strange to say this because now we're like, we have this like straight lineage almost, but 3D Land feels to me like a precursor to 3D World, which now is a precursor to Mario Odyssey 2, which is confusing. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, yeah. yeah, this is all this is all conjecture. But 3D land, instead of having like an overworld where you're kind of like running around and doing a bunch of shit, like there's no Captain Toad, whatever, like you're just like you're just going from like level to level to level to level. Um, and it's like one of the one of the few, I would say, I'm not gonna say only, but it's like one of the few games on the 3DS that like really made use of the 3D in a really like yeah. really staggering way. It's it's a it's a beautiful video game and it uses a 3D in a way that actually aids you and helps you make it through those levels, which I think is really smart. I think that that game is also extremely tight. It's like another one of those ones where it's just like every single time you jump into a level you're gonna just have like an extremely good time and then it's over and then you have an extremely good time again and then it's over and you just do that over and over again until the game is done and then you're like do i want to get the secrets or not and that's like kind of where you're at (laughs) yeah i picked up 3d land actually somewhat recently and i was shocked how much i loved it again 
it's Mario. I shouldn't be shocked. But yeah. it's like, you know, I, I didn't even really know there was like a mainline Mario game on the 3DS. Like <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there was, but I didn't know like what it was or why I would care. Yeah. And picking up 3D Land, you're right. I mean, we, we talk about the 3DS a lot, but I don't really very seldomly do we highlight the 3D as a selling point. If I if I remember correctly, Super Mario 3D Land was one of the earlier 3DS titles. I think it was like 2011 when it came out. So mm. I imagine it was a little bit more pressure of like, we got to sell the 3D. But it is so cool. I mean, every introduction to a new level has a little scene play out. And then there's like a photograph of Bowser with Peach, which is kind of weird because like she's always in the process of being kidnapped but it's like a like we miss you photograph to mario (laughs) it's like i'm here now come find us but uh, that looks really fun in 3d and then the levels like the tanuki suit and this like you know you kind of flutter in the air and putting on the 3d during that there's such a strong sense of verticality it's like really wondrous like it really does inspire like this feeling of like oh my god i've never really felt heights in a mario game before like i've never felt mm-hmm. like oh i'm really high up like yeah you know, it's mario he's fine but like <laughs> i do in that game when the 3d is on and it gives you such a sense of like a, a depth of field as well where yeah. like you know you'll see in the distance like there's one i think it's like a bowser like airship or something but like seeing like the bullet bills and stuff and like the enemies below you mm-hmm. you don't have to like it still has that effect without the 3d but i just found like it really does showcase like what 3d could do for games yeah it is kind of a shame that none of them really followed that example at all but you know i i think that it's cool that it exists i mean i don't ever think that games are going to move in a predominantly 3d direction i feel like that even just the idea of the 3ds like the 3d feature was definitely born in the era of like film trying to push 3d on everyone so i feel like it was just right, this, yeah. like this like very quick cinema fad that ended up defining an entire nintendo handheld system (laughs) um but i do think it's cool to see it pulled off well and it's like it's kind of like when a when a vr game not one-to-one but like when vr really like highlights an experience or something is like specifically made for vr yeah it could be a really cool experience and i think the same with 3d on the 3ds yeah i i was just thinking as as we were talking about this i was just thinking about how you could emulate the 3d in a vr headset like if you (laughs) made a 3ds emulator that was compatible with like the oculus or something or sorry the meta quest or whatever the fuck mark zuckerberg is calling it these days (laughs) you you could just have like flat screens but then like still use the vr headset to project 3d and you could do that i wonder if anyone is doing that out there if somebody's doing that tell me on twitter at Brendan Bigley. I check that <laughs> account like maybe once a week now, but I will check this week. <laughs> I promise. Uh, I'm curious about that. Anyway, yeah, 3D Land is sick. I know what you mean about the verticality. I, I think that's like that's one of the selling points of that game for me. I think that's one of the most interesting things. It honestly feels like, you know, talking about uh, putting this like red string on, on our cork board between all these different Mario games and clippings of murders or whatever. But I feel like Mario 3 on the NES was like so trying to do that with its kind of like theater energy and the whole idea yeah. that it's like a stage play. This game really does feel like looking into a stage. It almost feels like looking into this kind of toy box. Um, they like really they really saw that idea to its like fullest potential in 3D land. That game is really wonderful. And I, and I think again just kind of like 
that game to 3D World to Odyssey is very similar to the uh, Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds to Breath of the Wild of it all. Sure, yeah. I think I think you can so clearly see that lineage between those games. I think also even more directly, Mario 3 into Super Mario Worlds is like, you know, such a yeah. such a leap even in that short, you know, release to release. Totally. <laughs> you mentioned the theater, though. Something I realized only recently while playing... 3d land is how much i love the audience applause when mario does something well like i never think about it but it's like the secret ingredient of like what makes mario like the best (laughs) platformer game yeah it's the audience applause you know i'm glad that tv has moved away from canned laughter and fake audience response i think games need a little more of it i want (laughs) to i want a really serious dramatic sony studios game to have like a studio audience go oh and like the you know the big dramatic moment or like yeah <laughs> if you, i don't actually want this but you know what i mean It'd doesn't that feel like a thing that like if you if you could have i don't know uh early 2000s naughty dog talk to current naughty dog they would make a last of us game that had like a cheat code that had a studio audience <laughs> yes <laughs> what i would Take what i would give for that run yeah Ooh. <laughs> Everyone's got big head mode on. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I will buy Last of Us Part 1 if it has if it has big head mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, you can unlock Spider-Man and go skateboarding yeah, on the moon. Exactly. In The Last of Us Part 1. <laughs> um, anyway, anything else you want to say about Bowser's I do have more like, thoughts, Stephen. Believe yeah, it or not. I want to hear them. So talking about Bowser's Fury as this like potential lead into what Odyssey 2 is going to be, my thought then is like, okay, cool. So Odyssey 2 then is this big open world and you can go and do whatever you want. And there's just like more like Bowser's Fury is obviously a small contained title that's, again, attached to this other thing. It's like DLC sized. But what if you were to take that idea and make it gigantic? If you do that, do you lose a little bit of what made Odyssey so great, which is this idea of like Mario traveling around to all these different, very, very disparate art directed in completely different ways, like almost shouldn't even be in the same game worlds, which then makes me wonder if if the way that you merge those two ideas is fewer worlds that you're traveling between, they're just like gigantic. You know, every single one is like New Donk City or bigger because couldn't you see a version of new donk city that like is what bowser's fury is i think mm, yeah. I, that just feels like such a such like an obvious thing i also just wonder if they're gonna bring new donk city back because i feel like everybody loved that <laughs> so much yeah newer donker city er yeah newer newer donk city <laughs> i think what you could also do and this is you know what do i know about designing a mario game but I think something that I like about Breath of you add more shells. We love them. <laughs> we keep coming back for the green, the red, the blue. Give yeah. them. Dude, uh, give me another color. I remember like <laughs> when I first, first played Breath of the Wild on my roommate's Wii U. It actually took me a second to like get used to it because it was so radically different from every Zelda game I had played as like a longtime Zelda fan. Yeah. I eventually loved it, but there was this kind of moment of like, whoa, this is like really different. Yeah. And I think something that kind of helped ease me in and something that I think was a great decision, like you said, do you lose something when you don't have those 
really specifically designed worlds, I think you could apply the same for like the the temples in Zelda. Mm. You know, do you lose something when it's just a big, you know, natural world, but you lose like the vibe of the forest temple and the shadow temple and all that. I think having the shrines be like a little bite-sized temple yeah. throughout a giant wilderness that had also I mean there are very distinct you know flavors of area in that game like the the yeah Hyrule has a strong enough history that we can know like okay like there's gonna be like a big desert area and there's gonna be like the Rito village and you know, they had a lot of fun like making it feel like a fully realized world Mario I think about the Mario RPGs and how like in Bowser's Inside Story which we played recently for our DS episode like there's a really distinct flavor to all those areas you're going in this like RPG quest. I wonder if you can kind of have that as like the overall world map, but then, you know, scattered around there are like warp pipes or something that take you into like, here's like a bite size, like kind of like what they did in, in sunshine where you had these like very quick hits of like a specifically designed platformer. And even Bowser's Fury does a bit of that where like you go up into the sky and there's like a quick, like surreal challenge in the clouds. Yeah. And that's, I think the, the success of Bowser's Fury is like it's inspiring these discussions and these ideas like totally. it already is like oh because you know it, it is hard to think of like what do you want from Mario like even finding out there was a Mario game I hadn't played I was like what what is it like why would I why would I care about it yeah it's Mario this is my thing I don't care about Mario until I'm playing Mario they yeah. announce a new Mario game I don't give <laughs> yeah. a shit and then I get it day one because I'm like well I gotta check it out because it's Mario and then I yeah. don't put it down until it's done yeah. Every time. I, I just yeah. know this about myself, and I think this is maybe everybody. I am excited to see. I, I would be very surprised and disappointed, even though like I'm lukewarm about Bass's Fury. I would be disappointed if they made this and just like totally didn't incorporate it into the next game. Yeah. Like, that would be like a giant wasted opportunity. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay, 2D Mario Street is going to be the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you can only slip. It's like there's no more <laughs> jumping. You just got to find a watery surface and then yeah. slip over it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Al's plumbing simulator. <laughs> <laughs> Mario's cousin Al, who's left with the fucking business after Mario got sucked into the pipe. Yeah, exactly. All, is it all right, Al's? <laughs> <laughs> he's not bad he's all right oh my god he's entrepreneurial he's got his he's got the business going it's still it's still working without mario or luigi he's down two guys and he still has the business afloat now that we know that al is all right do you want to take a small break and uh move on to the next section oh do we get to talk about xenoblade chronicles 3 now <laughs> We, was this whole segment detention? I left a penny, and now I get to take a penny. Yeah, exactly. You left the Super Mario 3D Land, you get back uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 3. <laughs> let's take a break. And then maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, let's see what happens. Goodbye. So long. Is this really all they had to worry about? Boys, movies, deciding which shirt goes with which skirt. <laughs> it's bizarre. Get up. We're leaving. Come on. And if I say no? <gasps> Do you even realize what your life means? Huh? Running off like that, putting yourself at risk? It's pretty goddamn stupid. <gasps> well, I guess we're both disappointed with each other then. <gasps> what do you want from me? Admit that you wanted to get rid of me the whole time. <gasps> Tommy knows this area. Oh, fuck. Than... 
Well, I'm sorry. I trust him better than I trust myself. Stop with the bullshit. What are you so afraid of? That I'm going to end up like Sam? I can take care of myself. How many close calls have we had? Well, we seem to be doing all right so far. And now you'll be doing even better with Tommy. Not her, you know. What? Maria told me about Sarah. Ellie? And... You are treading on some mighty thin ice here. I'm sorry about your daughter, Joel, but I have lost people too. You have no idea what loss is. Everyone I have cared for has either died or left me. Everyone fucking except for you. So don't tell me that I would be safer with someone else because the truth is I would just be more scared. Welcome back, Stephen. Hey. Welcome back, dear listener. Also, hello to you. Thanks for thanks for joining us again. An omnipotent third party in this Skype call. <laughs> omnipotent. Okay. I like yeah. That. Yeah. I don't know when you add the the collective brains of everybody together, right? You've got to be close sure. to omnipotency. I have to imagine. That's true. That also sounds somewhat related to the game we're going to be talking about in this <laughs> section. Maybe two sections. I'm not sure yet. We surely have no idea how long this is going to go. Uh, but you guessed it. We are talking about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 yeah. for the Nintendo Switch. Uh, yeah. I would love to open with kind of a brief history, because honestly, I think if you've been listening to the show for at least five minutes, you are not surprised <laughs> at all that we have brought this game up like at all. In fact, you probably expected it and you see it in the show title. So, you know, already. But yeah. I think if you listened for a long time, you know that this is a series I don't have any experience with. You have tried repeatedly to get into it and have yeah. kind of struggled to i would say i have a fraught relationship <laughs> with the work of monolith soft yeah so i will start by saying i am maybe in love with xenoblade chronicles 3 i am 12 hours in i am at the beginning of chapter 2 uh which i would say like whoa the first the first chapter what what's up we're in like a freaky friday situation here really yeah i'm like 15 hours in and i'm like at the beginning of chapter four. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, I have been doing a lot of the side stuff. I've been yeah, doing a lot of, sure uh, sounds like that's battles. amazing. Um, I also, I probably have left it on a couple times for hours, so that might be inflating the time, but I, I would say at least nine of those 12 have been actively played. Mm-hmm. But either way, I would say uh, the first chapter is like eight-ish hours, and that is really like a prologue all that to say this section will be spoiler free i imagine we'll speak to some of the story setup that occurs in that first chapter yeah nothing major uh but but i think we have a lot to say about this game overall but i love it i know you love it but i, I wanted to start with our history because honestly i have already become a a unasked for salesman for this game i've been telling people <laughs> i know who i think would like it to get it and the question i'm constantly asked is do I need to have played Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2? Which, as someone who has not, I would say you don't have to. There is a connection. There's a connection in the way that all the Final Fantasy Ivelisse games are connected, in that it is the same worlds, from what I know, in every Xenoblade Chronicles game. I know that thematically there are some things that are that are explored. There's some like loose connections, but at least so far in the 
12 ish hours I've played there there it's entirely its own news story I imagine that there might be some larger payoffs if you have like an attachment to this place that you've seen change over like a really long history I would even say that like starting here is a little bit like a near automata scenario where like you can definitely play near automata without having played near replicant or Draken guard three but like if you have you'll notice like oh that's the same design that's you you know you'll you'll yeah. see things like that but you're not gonna need to know any of that right. from what i've experienced so far that's what i would say yeah i actually have been wondering to myself if this is more of an evilise or more of a high rule situation mm, I, don't, yeah. I don't i don't know the answer to that if i'm being totally honest so i, I guess to say what my history with this franchise yeah. is um early early on in this podcast uh when we started season two the subtitle of season two of into the aether was the quest continues because i was looking for the jrpg that i would get into because it was just a genre of video game that i had no experience with that i had like pretty much just a complete like lack of awareness of i just didn't know what Other i liked. Than like kingdom hearts yeah 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 right um i i, I guess specifically i wanted to get into like a turn-based jrpg specifically like i, I really right. wanted to finally get over that hump of like enjoying turn-based combat because um, I always thought it would be for me, but I just didn't know. And sometimes uh, sometimes the genre just had these had these issues that I, I couldn't get over. And I picked up Xenoblade Chronicles 2 because it was like so frequently recommended to me as like the one on the switch to pick up. It's like, oh, man, if you want to get into the genre, pick up Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is like the best one you can get on the switch. And I started playing it and immediately ran into the aforementioned issues because the character designs were like so needlessly like misogynistic and horny in ways that just like were kind of like embarrassing i just found it like embarrassing absolutely yeah and especially considering at the time i was still commuting back and forth to work and i would bring my switch on the train with me for two hours each way i was like i'm not gonna play this fucking game with like (laughs) i don't know like it just didn't make sense to me uh so i i ended up putting that game down about like 10 to 15 hours in i i played like a pretty decent chunk of it i played as much of that game as i have played of xenoblade chronicles 3 at this point the big thing though was that that was over the course of like a month and this has been over the course of like maybe three days honestly less because i've been away for two days so uh, the friday it came out and now (laughs) today monday when we're recording so there's that i also at a certain point went on a hike with a friend uh esteban if you're out there shout out to you who uh throughout the most of the hike told me about his new favorite video game xenoblade chronicles definitive edition for the nintendo switch which is a remake of the first one i was a little bit skeptical because of my experience with two I also picked up for $80 the Nintendo Wii version uh, at one point in my life and tried playing that and didn't enjoy that at all. But I was like, let me give it another shot because I know a little bit more now. This is, you know, after the quest has continued, I have found Dragon Quest. I've found love in my heart uh, for others. Yeah, you're uh, recommending Live Alive to me now. Like, yes, yeah, you've, exactly. You've, you've yeah. finished the quest. I yeah. figured it out. So I was like, let me pick up Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition and check it out. And I got into it and I, again, played about 10 to 15 hours. Had a pretty good time. There are some things about that game that really work for me and there's some things that really don't. Namely, writing, character, story, world, music, unbelievable. Like, uh, like really just some of the most stellar shit 
I've played in any video game for real. Like I, th- I think that some of the stuff they're doing cinematically, some of the stuff they're doing, even just in terms of like the voice acting being like deeply British is like interesting to be perfectly honest. It's just like an interesting choice. There's just a lot of really cool swings in that game. And one of the swings and misses for me was the combat and, and the complexity of that game, um, which does not go away really at all in Xenoblade 2 from what I remember of that game as well. That was like almost three years ago at this point, maybe four. Um, it was a long time ago. Yeah. But Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition was not, unfortunately, a game that I felt like I could jump into and out of because it was so complex and was so constantly layering new ideas and new mechanics on top of itself that anytime I jumped in, I needed to go in and refigure out everything that I had learned, which is all the basis for what they're still trying to teach me again 10 to 15 hours in so that ended up not being like the casual game that i went back to because it was a game that i really wanted to talk about on this show eventually i wanted to come back and say like hey i'm now 50 hours into this and i wanted to do a check-in and say like this is where i'm at i had to drop it eventually i just like i just couldn't do it at a certain point yeah all of that having been said i had the same question that many people have had for you and i you know many people have had for me as well which is like do you need to have played those games to play xenoblade chronicles 3 this feels so much to me like the culmination of those two games it feels like it gets everything right from both of those games it almost feels like they were both trial runs for xenoblade chronicles 3 this this is just like so from what i can tell so far no direct connections maybe some stuff towards the end who knows maybe the, maybe the end will be like wildly disappointing if you haven't played the first two i'm not <laughs> sure yet um but so far it just feels like everything I liked about the first one and everything I liked about the second one, to be clear, there are things to like about the second one. I, I have my issues with the character design, but that game's combat feels significantly better. The UI is significantly better. I think the world uh, continues to get more interesting. There's a lot of stuff to like about that game. Uh, and this third entry like, is the one. I think like it, it it is for real the one I think it does a much better job of getting you in the world immediately. We'll talk more about this later, but I think it does a much better job of teaching you its mechanics at a pace and in a way that makes more sense. I think it gets a little bit cumbersome, but I wouldn't really have it any other way. And I'll talk more about what that means later as well. I just am so fucking blown away by this game i really i like i can't put it down today i i I had off work again today and i i had this moment where i like wanted to jump back into bowser's fury and play more of it and i just couldn't take myself away from xenoblade chronicles 3 the whole time so i just like didn't (laughs) yeah it's really cool to hear you say that it's sort of this crystallization of everything because it's, it's largely the same team every time like obviously yeah, there so are it's, like it's monolith you know, soft sorry monolith yeah. software inc who i think got purchased by nintendo uh in like the early 2000s around the time the Wii came out the yeah. first like nintendo published xeno game was in a blade chronicles right the first one Right. Yeah. And it's always directed by the same guy, uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, who's been around and in the industry for a long time. He used to work at Square. Uh, I mean, he's been making Xeno prefixed games for a long time, starting with, I think it was Xeno Gears at Square was the first one. Yeah, Xeno Gears is the first one. I really want to play that one because it just seems so wild and yeah. notoriously difficult. Notoriously difficult. Uh, we recently discovered it was pitched as the original plot for Final Fantasy VII, and then later in development was planned on being the sequel to Chrono Trigger. So even though we've both been dodging Xeno as a series, it has kind of spiritually been connected to things we've loved this yeah. whole time. Yeah. So yeah, I. But you were saying, you know, this is like everything this team has 
done well and now like leading into like kind of the story they've always been trying to tell mm. it feels a lot like hades where like i have i was a super giant fan from day one with bastion yeah but i know that a lot of people didn't always like fully latch on to their games i mean they, they always did well like bastion was a huge breakout hit transistor and pyre were successful but it was never like I think the success they wanted it to be or like yeah. they always felt like a little bit like other than Bastion, I think Transistor and, and Pyre felt like really cool ideas that maybe didn't come together in the best way. Mm-hmm. And then Hades, I think I described Hades as like watching your friend's band blow up where I'm like, yes, this is how I've always seen you in my heart of hearts. Yes, yes. And I feel like um, there's actually a great review for Xenoblade Chronicles 3 uh, on Polygon by Autumn Wright that kind of communicates this feeling. There, there's someone who has played the other Xenoblade Chronicles games, and they also mentioned the issues they, they had with 2 and how like this is the first caveat-free recommendation. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, and, and I think like, so I guess if you don't mind, I'll just quickly do my history with Xenoblade. Yeah, yeah, it's very course. short. My, <laughs> I didn't play him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm going to say that in a fancy way for 20 minutes. Please do. But I remember like I definitely saw like imagery of Xenogears and Xenosaga, which was like the middle series yes. on the PS2 in some game magazine at some point. But I never really retained what it was. It's sort of just like a fever dream that washed over me. The first time I heard this series like really said out loud and like, oh, this is like a thing that exists was in Smash Brothers with Shulk oh, uh, yeah. joining the roster. So I, I knew that. Shulk was from Xenoblade, didn't really know, like, kind of akin to what a lot of people felt with Marth and Roy and Melee, where it's like, who's this? Where, where are they from? <laughs> uh, at that time, you know, you literally couldn't play Fire Emblem yet in the United States. In a lot of ways, the popularity of Marth and Roy and Melee, I, I do think, helped bring Fire Emblem to the West, which is yeah, really cool. I totally, yeah. Absolutely. And I imagine Shulk probably introduced a lot of people to Xenoblade. I, I was like, I was curious about it, but I was, I don't know if I need like another big JRPG right now. Like I already have like eight always <laughs> with me in, yeah. in my mind. Like, I don't know. It's a lot to ask, you know, even if you're a big fan of the genre, it's always like, oh man, do I need another one right now? So I kind of just put it off and then two came out and um, actually my roommate, Bobby, for listening, hello, he loved Xenoblade Chronicles X for the Wii U, which was I don't know how it relates narratively, but it was kind of a spinoff, but it was it was all about mechs. Yeah, I think it's considered a spiritual sequel. Yeah, I know Xenogears is very heavily mech based in like an Evangelion way. And like, you know, they all have certain interest in mechs in some way (laughs) from what I know. But Xenoblade Chronicles X was like, you are going to like a mech piloting camp. And eventually we'll get your own robotic mech. It's not like believing in yourself and you get a mech. Like you're just like waiting in line for an actual physical mech. Right. From what I know. And that game looked cool. And I knew he was a big fan of the series. So I actually bought him Chronicles 2 when it came out for the Switch. And I watched him play it a bunch. And I, yeah, I just, I loved the world and I loved the music. It's Yasunori Mitsuda, our hero, who's yeah. composed so many wonderful game soundtracks. The King. The King. But uh, yeah, similar to you, I just like didn't really, I was put off by Ellen of it and I just didn't really have a strong interest I didn't really know like why I would want to play it really and just to touch on that character design point really quickly I think like there are so many games that Brendan and I love that we bring to the show that also have unfortunately those kind of caveats where like yeah there might be really questionable character design and you know I think it you said the word embarrassing and that's I think 
the perfect way to sum up when character design is just bad because it's not communicating anything other than like horny like it's you know you don't know who the character is i I always think of um i always point to hades when this conversation comes up where it's like i don't think anyone is saying that you can't have open sexuality or attractive characters in a game right but their design should communicate who they are and what their story is you know and in hades when you meet athena she's designed very differently than aphrodite you know and if they were designed the same just because they're women that would be so embarrassing and shitty and misogynistic and like i think for me when a game or any piece of media just like overtly sexualizes a character simply because of their gender that's when it's like what are you communicating on consciously here or consciously so anyway I, I i bring that up because i know that there are a lot of people who have the same caveats who love xenoblade one and two and like you know i trust that there's a lot to like there but i think whether or not you're comfortable with kind of ignoring issues like that is so wildly a personal thing yeah that i'm not gonna say what works and what doesn't i think yeah. it's really it boils down to the individual I can say like what I think good character design is in my opinion, but I can't say like why you should be comfortable or not playing anything. And that's why I think on, on this show, like I don't try to bring up these conversations a bunch because I don't think you or I are like the jury on this issue in any way, (laughs) nor should we be. But I also think like if something bothers me, I'm going to bring it up because I'm sure it's going to bother someone else. Right. Yeah, of course. And that's kind of, that's kind of my line of thinking. So I just wanted to touch on that because I think like, you know, I, I have we've brought this up before about Xenoblade 2 yeah. and I have had a decent amount of people message me being like it's such a great game I understand if you can't look past that but there's a lot to love and I and I do believe that I just want to make that clear like I do believe that there is a there's a reason that game was such a hit yeah in spite of the shitty character design yeah I've I've heard that so much i've heard that the uh the big dlc story content that they added at the end uh, i think i think it was called torna or like the golden country or something like that i've heard that if you play through that entire saga i'll, I'll call it xenoblade chronicles 2 and its dlc it's like one of the best overall stories in an rpg like ever i've, I've heard that many times from many people who've done it and honestly if i make it to the end of xenoblade chronicles 3 and i'm like man that was fucking incredible like maybe i do go back and and finish definitive edition of one and like give to another shot like i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility but you just need to go in with those heavy caveats that it might not be for you and it might end up putting you off from the whole experience exactly yeah so so that's basically my history with series. <laughs> cool. so all that to say when they when like the big trailer dropped for three i honestly had no idea if i was gonna get it yeah like i think you and i were both kind of on the fence you and i have been talking about it like constantly yeah for like yeah. months we've just been like i don't know man what are you thinking about this and i'm like i don't know i I don't know if I trust them. Like, honestly, that was like really what it came down to. I was just like, I don't know if I trust them with this one after what they did with two. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see when the reviews drop, if it, if it's good or whatever. But I was nervous about it. Honestly, yeah. I was also nervous that it was going to be too much of a of a of a game that has connective tissue to its prequels you know i I was worried that it was going to be the culmination of one two and x uh and i was like i'm never going to finish those games so is xenoblade chronicles 3 for me at all um and it was kind of interesting when the review embargo lifted to see review because so many of the reviews are written by people who've played the other ones and love them which I, i i'm so glad to have that perspective because it it tells people out there 
like hey there's this incredible trilogy all three of them are on the switch unfortunately x is not i know people are clamoring for x to get ported to switch eventually i could see that happening especially considering i imagine this game is going to be wildly successful the one game preservation avenue they're like all in on is the wii u for yeah. some reason yeah so, that, so that, that's you know. weirdly one of the outliers is, is x but anyway yeah. that haven't been said like this trilogy of games is all available on the switch right now so i'm so glad that people can go read that review or any of those reviews for three and say like wow i'll start from the top and do all of them and it's going to be great i mean that's going to be like one of the coolest longest experiences you'll ever have with a video game franchise on the switch that having been said though i did seek out specifically a couple reviews here and there by people who had not played any of the previous ones because that was essentially where i was coming from even though i've played enough of one and two to understand what's going on mechanically and like story premise wise because to be clear i don't think we've even said this these games are like notoriously about a hundred or more hours long yeah So that having been said, what I played was like preamble for a story for the first two games. Uh, So by no means am I an expert on what's going on in them, how they end, how they could possibly connect to sequels, etc. So I, I just, you know, went at this from the perspective of somebody who's played none of them. So that having been said, a lot of reviews pretty openly were like yeah go check it out you're gonna have a great time uh some of them you know didn't finish the game in time for the review embargo which like totally makes sense because it's again it's a hundred hour video game uh, and i think they had a couple weeks to play it which is not enough time but all of that having been said i ended up picking this up kind of on a whim just i was like interested enough the reviews were glowing i was like why not give it a shot and i recorded my first hour of play and threw it up on youtube and in that first hour i was just like i think this is the one i think that this is doing something like on a completely different level than the first two and honestly it just hasn't slowed down at all since then i mean since like since hour one through 15 this game has really only gotten better in a lot of regards i do think that the first hour really is you can tell they put a lot of time and effort into making it hit the way that it does because it's a very concise and very smart premise for a video game uh that is going to be 100 hours long it's extremely well done but by the time the game finally does open up and become like a fully open world you can kind of not do whatever but you can you know start to experience a lot of side quests outside of just the ones and kind of these smaller more condensed versions of open worlds which is like about 10 hours in i would say the game just becomes this like sprawling beautiful fantasy cyberpunk wonderland that i i i, I am like totally over the moon about and it's it, you said this to me and i it's shocking i think that i agree with you here but like it's the first game that made me think like maybe elden ring isn't the game of the year uh, <laughs> you know because yeah. i think that's just been like a shoe in the whole time since what was that march that that came out like february uh, Feb- february even yes uh since the second month of the year at pretty much everyone <laughs> who does what we do has been like that's the game of the year definitely no question about it and this is the first one that's making me second guess that and that alone i think is a huge accomplishment for a game franchise that again i wasn't that sold on or like really interested in or didn't have that much trust in even um to yeah. even like succeed on any level for me personally again yeah i uh i I am also blown away by it, especially because like the first 
hour and a half is like at least 80% cutscenes, which like, yeah, usually I would say is objectively a bad idea. Yeah. Um, there are, there are a lot of games that I love that are cutscene heavy, Death Stranding, you know, I mean, any Kojima game is going to have that. I think the opening of Metal Gear Solid 4 is like actually a movie until you get to yeah. start playing. Uh, AJ, correct me if I'm wrong. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much. Uh, the actual, the beginning of Metal Gear Solid 4 is actually a four minute cutscene followed by some uh, light gunplay followed by a nine minute cutscene. So uh, you could actually get started pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. But the end of the game, however, is uh, you, you start off. Off and there's about 18 minutes of gameplay and then an hour and three minutes of epilogue cutscene. So that's probably what you're thinking of. Uh, thanks. See ya. But uh, the way that this game opens is so strong. And as much as this game is definitely going to be a, a 100 plus hour game, and as much as I've seen a lot of the reviews, like if I've seen any like common negative, it's been like maybe it's a little bit overstuffed in terms mm-hmm. of like the grand scheme of the adventure, which, you know, I, I can see that. But like at the very least, just the way the, the story kicks off, it's really well paced. Yeah. And that pacing applies to also just how the game plays like what tools they're giving you, what they're teaching you. One caveat I have, I do think that the the tutorials are really expertly dished out and they're given to you at like moments where the story calls for it, which I, I think like yes. the cohesion between the story and yes. the mechanics of this game is like beautiful. It's one-to-one. So anytime you're getting a new tool, it's because the story demands it in some ways. My one gripe though is that like when the tutorial happens, they don't let you move on until they've like really made sure you know how to do it. So it'll be like, you can cook at camp, but it's, oh great, that's fun. Open the menu, go to items, go to cooking. Not, no, 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 you have to cook this thing. Click this, now exit the menu. And it's like, it sounds like that's like, I'm nitpicking, but it's like that every time. Yeah. And really what it means is I'm so excited to do the new thing and I want to do it my way, but they're going to make me go through an example that they've constructed. Right. So, and then the story might move on. There That that uh, tutorial at camp where they're teaching me how to cook, I wanted to like make what I wanted to make, then rest, then do my thing. But like they made me cook what they wanted. And then the next thing was a cutscene, So I had to wait like 10 minutes to do what I wanted. Very, very small nitpick, but it, it it does happen enough in the beginning that I could see that rubbing some people the wrong way. I think that's probably true. I will say for me specifically, it really is working. I as as I had the same reaction as you early on as it kept happening over and over again. And then at a certain point, I started to realize that I really did like very inherently learn how to do all that stuff because I'm personally very much a person who learns by doing. Uh, so yeah. forcing me to do when you tell me the thing, because so frequently I'll, I'll learn about a new mechanic and then just be like, all right, sure, whatever. Maybe I'll use that sometime and then move on. Forcing me to actually do it really does help it and that's true help me ingrain yeah. in my brain it's very much like you know taking handwritten notes even when you don't need to you know even if you're never gonna look at them again just the act of writing them down helps you remember forcing me to go into the cooking menu and cook a specific thing and see its results and have that all explained to me i think it's very funny that it then tutorializes leaving the menu every single time that's the <laughs> thing that really drives me up a wall is like yeah. every time it's like now press b to exit the menu it's like i know i know how to close a menu my guy but that happened 
having said, I mean, there there are so many mechanics in this game that walking me through each one like that, I think, is actually very helpful. And I think it you're does right. pay off. Yes, yeah, it does pay off. Yeah. And I think you're right that the way that they're doling them out or at least the pace at which they're doling them out and, and the way that they're endemically explained in story as well is so fucking smart because that was my big issue with Xenoblade Chronicles 1 was just I felt like there was no end to the mechanics that they were layering on and there's never a moment where you get to breathe and try them out really there are so many things that are introduced in like hour one and two of that game that are so unnecessary for the story that they're trying to tell because they're what they're really doing is just jamming up their own pacing because that game I, I won't get too into the story of Xenoblade Chronicles 1 but that game's whole vibe essentially is that there's a war between like organic life forms and and essentially robots um, like like sentient AI machines that's been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries eons as far back as anyone can remember but there was a big ceasefire essentially that happened at one point because like the organic life forms just kind of like won and everything just stopped and everything was good for a long time so you're you start that game at like the beginning of of a a moment of peace and of course everything goes to shit but you have like three or four hours before that happens you have like three or four hours of like running around the world with your friends uh just kind of like hanging out fighting some monsters doing some like weird shit before the first machine shows up and you're like oh my god this is wild and then it's like here's the tutorial where we show you that uh every person you've talked to in this town has a relationship with every other person and you need to manage those relationships and know who everyone is so here's this big sphere grid of everyone that you've ever talked to and you can just jam on that for a while if you want or you can run away from the the nuke that's about to hit your city because a monster <laughs> just threw one at you. Whatever you want. Yeah. You're cool. You're cool to do either. It's like they just didn't think about it. And in this game, it's so clear that they like really, really wanted people to internalize that in, in a way that felt meaningful, like emotionally outside of yeah. just like I'm learning how to play the video games. Like they wanted you to emotionally understand how to play the video game. Yeah, there, there's so many examples of that. And I won't really spoil them because they're, they're great moments. But I will say, too, even though I criticize some of the tutorials are being a little bit too demanding. I'm always, always excited at the new thing and not exhausted. Yeah. Which is like a really delicate balance for a game that has so many systems. Like as soon as you think the game is like good, <laughs> th- like this game is like eight different. We always talk about um the Great Plateau yeah. in Breath of the Wild. It's like kind of a, a sneaked in tutorial. Like it mm-hmm. feels like you're playing the game, but it really is just like, cool, you got all the items you need. See ya. There's like at least three great plateaus in the first yeah. 10 hours of this game. I will say too, for anyone who's picking it up for the first time, the first time they let you fight, it will feel really simple. Like it's going to feel like really basic. Yeah. That is not an accurate representation <laughs> of how most of the game will be. Right. If I showed you what will, what battles will look like 45 minutes <laughs> Yeah. From that point, it's going to be very different. But I would say, like, in terms of the battle system, I think if you are a fan of FF12 or FF14, this is going to be like yeah. Ambrosia to you. Right. Because it has sort of, I think all, all the Xenoblade Chronicles games, if I'm understanding correctly, have kind of a single player MMO vibe to them. Yeah. So, like, characters like will. You're roaming around this like open environment. There are monsters there. Some monsters are hostile if you like approach them too closely. Some you can kind of, you know, just like fight if you want. And you'll see like who's targeting who with like overarching lines. And uh, you will automatically attack. But then you have like 
combat arts equipped that are special moves that have different cooldowns. That's like the basics, but they kind of build on top of that. And every character has a distinct role to play. So the game begins, you have like a healer, a tank, and like a a damage character, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it is brilliant how they kind of give you that and then just continuously layer on top of it. It does weirdly remind me of Octopath Traveler in that way, where like the way that game like dishes out options for the player, I always saw it as like a blossom. Mm. Like it's like even the map, you're kind of going in a circle that expands outward and you're getting more and more characters, more and more classes. Uh, This game is structured in a similar way, not in terms of the map, but in terms of like how much you can do. And honestly, it becomes thrilling. And like, as much as I think that this game has an incredible story, there's a whole other appeal to this game that is purely mechanical. Because I think the battle system is like really, really cool. Yeah. I will say this is the JRPG I played that has the most characters in an active party I've ever seen. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little bit partial to the three or four out on the fields. I, I currently have six characters mm-hmm. out all at once. And if you're just, if you just like walk into a room of someone playing Xenoblade Chronicles three and you see what a battle looks like, it will make no sense. It's nonsense. Yeah. But the magic trick is that it, it does follow a pretty intuitive logic once yes. you're again. And that's the game is really, Really setting you up to succeed and then it's like okay now have fun finger painting with all the tools we gave you mm-hmm. now you can do whatever you want and that's so thrilling and again having that kind of go alongside the story that is really good and again as much as this game is this giant you know 100 hour single player mmo in the first couple hours i feel like i had such a strong sense of the main cast like yeah. who they were yeah i could describe to you like their hopes and dreams like their flaws like in immediately and again that goes back to also good character design which thankfully i i would say that this game avoids at least a lot of the glaring issues that two had yeah with how the characters are are portrayed yeah i haven't run into anything like that really uh there's there's i think one sequence that you and i wanted to probably talk about uh where yeah. you think that they're about to drop the ball and it actually is weirdly self-referential but yeah you're right on the money with all of that i i think just to speak a little bit to how the combat has worked in previous games in the first game uh the, the way it worked was you were auto attacking as you are in this game as well um but you always had this hot bar of of moves on the bottom of the screen that looked very much like an mmo hot bar in a way um and you would move back and forth left and right between all your different moves that you could do but the big thing was this idea idea of they're essentially being a set flow to combat this idea that you would need to break the guard of your enemy and then somebody else in your party with the topple ability would then have them topple and knock them over and then when they're on the ground and toppled you can then hit them and like stun them or daze them or put them to sleep or something like that so there's this set kind of trifecta of moves that you want to dole out in order the problem was generally speaking that it was hard to get your ai controlled party members to do the thing that you wanted them to to do like when you you know broke the guard as shulk it was hard to get like your other party members to then like go and do the topple move sometimes i forget if you could switch back and forth between them and if you could i honestly i don't think i was doing it because uh, i didn't really know and i just assumed that the ai would be smart enough to know to do that um and i found frequently that it wasn't uh so that got really frustrating definitely i think the combat feels worse in the first game the second game follows a very similar thing but is just kind of more smartly designed and feels much smoother uh it just feels like a refinement of what was going on in one and three is really fascinating to me because it still has all those elements of combat i think it's probably also worth mentioning if you've played as shulk and 
Super Smash Brothers, he's yelling air slash and backslash and all these things constantly out loud. Those are all moves that are in the game. And depending on your positioning in relation to an enemy, if you're behind them and you do a backslash, you'll do more damage. There's an air slash, which is a thing like I don't need to get into how air slash works, but like you also have a move that's kind of like a side move. So if you're on the side of an enemy and you hit them from the side, like you'll be more likely to break their guard, things like that. So they're really having you think about positioning as well. Uh, It's not just like sit back and auto attack and like wait for your hot bar to fill up. It's like you want to be moving and maneuvering yourself and your party members around the enemy at all times, which is really smart. And once you finally get into Xenoblade 3, it's all of that stuff coming to fruition with the added wonderful benefit of like a fucking clean UI. Like they just made a UI that makes sense. It doesn't look like an MMO hotbar. It's just the moves that you have equipped are are equipped to the face buttons. So ABXY and you watch them as they cool down and then you use them when they work. Uh, eventually you get enough moves where you're starting to add them onto the D-pad as well. And by the time you get to the D-pad side of things, like you already know how combat works well enough that it's not overwhelming. It's just a, an exploration of of your tool set even more and it just really highlighted for me how much a good ui can turn a battle system from like cumbersome to great because there's oh, not yeah. really a lot that's changed between two and three here outside of the way it looks on the screen but it just looks so good that it makes me excited to engage with it at all times it's another one of those situations where like at this point in like even a pokemon game i would have already been like skipping battles and not engaging when i could like i would be trying to run and avoid trainers and things like that and in this game I'm just like so excited to get into the next fight all the time. <laughs> yeah, me too. There's a bunch of other mechanics that I I don't maybe we should get into, maybe we shouldn't uh, eventually that they start layering on that make combat even more interesting uh in terms of what arts you can have equipped on what character, I'll say. Yeah, there's but, a lot of eventual customization. So like yes. I don't want to spoil exactly how or why, but I think early on it will show like okay, everyone has kind of a defined role. Yeah. You can kind of tweak that more as the game continues. Right. Yeah. I also love like they start you with two attackers, two defenders, two healers, which is really fun. So you have uh, you know, they're doing the classic like uh tank healer DPS thing from an MMO here where your tank is supposed to be drawing the aggro of the enemy at all times. So and you can see that visually because of the blue line that's connecting the enemy to the tank that currently has their aggro. And they're just trying to essentially prevent the attackers and the healers from getting hit by anything while they go and do their own thing. So the healers are constantly like throwing AOE rings on the ground that will like raise your attack or your defense or your evasion or whatever. The attackers are doing what I was mentioning from Xenoblade Chronicles 1 where they're moving around the enemy to wherever their attack is going to hit the hardest at all times. And it is actually kind of cool having six party members because you can see them all doing this stuff at all times and because you can switch between them on the fly if you want to or not. I mean, you really don't need to because, again, the AI is so well designed here that i find that they are doing the things that they're supposed to be doing i'm never like in want of a heal when i need one for example yeah it's not like ff7 remake which is kind of built with switching in mind where like yeah if you're not actively playing as one of the characters they're gonna be doing the bare minimum yes so that game requires you constant switch which i think does work in that game but it wouldn't work in a game like this where yeah i think what's great is like the ability to switch characters is more more about who do you have fun playing as yeah versus like exactly the ai isn't doing what i want them to do exactly and then you add to that 
and I, I won't say how or why, because I know you haven't hit this point, but eventually you get like a floating seventh character. Like there's a seventh mm. slot that gets added to your party that can be any number of people that you'll like run into throughout the story, which is really fun. It's a really cool idea to just have this like seventh slot that comes in and out. Who, I love that. I love guests. Yeah. In RPGs. Yeah, yeah I know. And, and I, I don't I don't know if you could play as them. I've actually not tried now that I think about it. I've, I haven't even like attempted to switch over and see if I could play as them. But it's just fun to like throw off the balance of like I have this set party because even right now I still have my two attackers, two tanks and, and, and two healers. And they just like throw in this seventh curveball of like, oh, now you're going to see what it's like to have three attackers. Like, oh, wow. How quickly are you ripping through these enemies now? Isn't that fun? Or, you know, a healer is going to join that's going to have, you know, a bunch of extra weird buffs. Uh, so you just feel, again, like wildly overpowered or like your health never goes down from max at any point in any combat. Like things like that is really fun. I love how much they show like so like early on you know when when you have the original three party members attacker tank healer it's it's like somewhat traditional like they have cool weapons like uh the tank lands who i love more on lands in a bit uh he's got like a giant broadsword that doubles as a shield that's also a turret it's sick every time (laughs) every time it switches I like cheer. Same with uh, Uni, the healer. She has the staff that's also kind of a sniper, which is sick. And, and I think everyone fights the way their character is, which I, I love when like there's a direct correlation between like who is this person mm-hmm. and how would they fight. So in the case of Lance, he's the tank. And without saying too much, he's also the character everyone is worried about, like in the story. Yeah. And I love it's like, okay, of course, everyone will be concerned about the well-being of the tank on like a gameplay MMO level. But like also applying that to the narrative is so much fun. But I think, you know, you get those three kind of traditional roles. But then you see like, okay, the next tank you meet is not lands with a shield and a broadsword, but is a highly evasive fighter. Yeah. So and this actually goes in, in Fire Emblem. They often say to have like a tank in a traditional sense and have a dodge tank who's just someone that can never be hit mm. but can actually fulfill the same role yeah. and that's what this character is where they are all about raising their evasion and essentially distracting the enemy right so it's like that is such a cool idea and, and it plants this seed of interest of like we're not just going to make you have you know what you kind of already see in front of you like there's going to be a twist on established RPG conventions mm-hmm. and then that gets twisted again and again and again and again until you know it's really whatever you want it to be at a certain point yeah uh which is so cool yeah and you start again without spoiling too much narratively as to why but you start mixing and matching all of this stuff eventually as well and you're starting to really customize these characters to be kind of whatever you want and that's where i have found uh it to be the most fun and again in any previous xenoblade game this would have been too overwhelming for me because i i think i have even a, a much lower tolerance for this kind of stuff than you do in this case and i am at the point where I'm like, you know, the things that I find to be overwhelming in this game, I just spend like maybe five to ten minutes learning what they are. And I'm like, cool, great. Now it's that's going to pay off forever. For example, I think one of the like prime examples of thing you and I talked about earlier today and people have been talking about in the discord a lot since the game came out but there's this idea in in the game of canceling moves and I'm not gonna like get too into what that is but they kind of like hit you with this tutorialization that's like yeah if you cancel some moves then uh they'll be even more powerful and they don't really like teach you a whole lot about it it's like one of the weird rare tutorials that like just kind of like moves on after they teach it to you and they don't really explain why it's useful or interesting it turns out that the word cancel in this case is kind of a misnomer like it's not really like representative of what's actually happening 
happening. What you're actually doing is at, when you auto attack this, the second your like sword hits the enemy, if you press one of your art moves, like if you press one of your like kind of like big moves, you'll stop the auto attack and immediately launch into whatever that move is that you just pressed. And it'll like sometimes do more damage. So their airstrike actually now we can explain airstrike. Airstrike is a move where if you're standing in front of the enemy and you do a quote unquote cancel where you go to auto attack an enemy and then you just press airstrike, you'll launch that character into the air and they'll do like twice as much damage and have a higher chance of critting the enemy as well. Things like that. Like that's that's actually pretty easy when it's explained that way. But in game, it's really kind of complicated. What's really wonderful is that all the tutorials are like most video games saved in a menu that you can just go check out at any time. But they also have this other section called training drills where if they're combat specific tutorials, they'll just let you go into this kind of like VR zone where you can just try it. So I went in and I did the cancel drill thing. It took like maybe a minute and I walked out being like, cool, I know how this works now. And I use it literally all the time. Every move I do is a cancel from now on, which (laughs) is great. I mean, that's that's one of those situations where in any previous game and in most games that aren't Xenoblade Chronicles 3, even outside of this franchise, that's an idea that I would just like put in the back of my head and forget about and never use probably. But because this game is really rewarding you for trying to figure out what its mechanics are and doling them out at a pace that is slow enough that it gives you time to kind of like tinker around with that stuff as they teach it to you. It doesn't it doesn't feel like something that I'm just going to need to file away as just another mechanic that they threw in here for no reason. It all feels very purposeful in this game in a way that it really didn't in the previous ones for me. That's what's so interesting about this game to me is that it's all the same stuff that I thought was overwhelming in one and two. It's just presented in a way that makes it all feel purposeful. And it makes me wonder if by again, by the time I'm done with three, if I will go back and be like primed to enjoy one and two even more now, because I I understand the actual gameplay purpose of all these mechanics that I thought were just like superfluous and annoying in the previous two games because they all they all just work here. Yeah, I mean, I think there are very strong parallels here in in my head to Persona 5 and then Persona Mm. 3 and 4, Mm -hmm. where like, I mean, talk about good UI. I I say this all the time. I'm pretty sure someone cosplayed as the battle menu from Persona 5. And that just like, (laughs) that shows you just the raw visual appeal of it. Right. But that game is, I'm not going to say it's welcoming because like there's still, it's still a big ask. There's still a lot going on. You probably won't know what you're doing until halfway through, which means 40 hours. But I do think that that game was a huge mainstream hit for a reason, for a lot of reasons. One, it's a great game, but two, I I think that like you can kind of get into the groove of it. And like, I think at the very least persona and even SMT, all those games, the battle systems are based on exploiting enemy weaknesses and getting to go again. And like, Persona 5 is really just built around that idea to the point where you're doing these flashy all-out attacks. It's just cool to see and like you get that idea mm-hmm. really early on and understanding that will allow you to play 3 and 4 which tell you nothing <laughs> and, and at all. They don't even tell you like to go to school. You can just end up staying home all day. But you'll go into those games and you know 5 will give you the sort of vocabulary to enter the previous games and know what you're doing. Yeah. And it feels like this is a similar scenario where like fundamentally they're trying to do similar things. It just does it the best. And once you know what the game is asking you more clearly, you can go back and play the other ones. Yeah. And I think it can't be overstated also that, you know, this is all stuff that you would be getting in an MMO also, but by virtue of it being a single player version of that, it just kind of gives you more breathing room and gives you more time to figure it out on your own instead of needing to like squat up with a bunch of randos and go into a cave and, 
get your ass kicked by a boss. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate that. Also, just like the single player MMO thing, I just think is like so wonderful. You and I love Final Fantasy 12. I feel like this is definitely the best I've seen it done outside of that. I mean, maybe even better than that at this point. I mean, as as stated by you, you're what, 12 hours into this game and you're still like just doing side quests and stuff like that's that's kind of the joy of this i think that's kind of the like at at a certain point i also hit that point where like i was like i'm kind of done progressing the story for now i'm just gonna go see what's up with side quests so one of the things i will spoil this for you mechanically because i think you're gonna just love it and i think it's more gonna be like you anticipating getting to it because you're really gonna like it but at a certain point uh, when you start going to visit colonies again, you and your party will start to wander around them and you can overhear conversations that people are having. And if you focus in on those conversations, there's like a button that's like focus and then you kind of zoom in on them and you can kind of like really on purpose overhear these conversations. You can, that's like you, a Sekiro. You could like yes, overhear. Yes, like, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So you can yeah. like purposefully eavesdrop on stuff. And when you do, you pick up all of this information about the colony and the things that the colony needs or wants or whatever. And then the next time you go sit down in a camp or a canteen or like in your tent or whatever, you can choose from all of the things that you've overheard and discuss all of them with the rest of the party. And they'll talk about like, you know, oh, the colony needs medical supplies. Like, how should we go about getting the medical supplies? And everyone in the party will chime in on like what you think you should do. And then it'll maybe unlock a side quest where like, okay, cool. We actually figured out a a pretty substantial way to go get medical supplies and bring them back to this colony. It's just we learn something new about this place. Isn't that cool? And then you just get a bunch of experience. And that's also fun and rewarding and interesting. But this idea of wandering around and using the conversations that are happening ambiently around a space as a way to engage in dialogue with your party and learn more about them and then have that be doubly rewarded through a side quest or through experience points that level everybody up. That shit is so cool. And it's these moments that happen over and over again that just endear you to this world, which honestly compared to the first two is much more dire. I mean, it's much closer to like a fallout post-apocalypse. There's nothing going on here because there's just been a war going on for so fucking long that like the world is, is it almost feels like Elden Ring in that way, where it's like the only thing that really has happened here is that the earth has been scorched by combat. Um, yeah. And, and you're just kind of picking up the ruins of that. So to have this world be endearing even amidst that is fascinating to me i think i think that is the biggest magic trick that at least like the the world design is pulling for me there are moments here and there where you get the xenoblade chronicles like beautiful green field blue sky clouds nothing else going on like you get that every once in a while but for the most part it's it just looks like an irradiated wasteland yeah the most uplifting place i've been to so far is a desert full of scorpions (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah and they're like three-story tall snakes my my favorite thing in the entire world is when you run into a snake like on purpose it's like you and all of your party you run headfirst into a three-story tall snake and noah goes well we've been found it's like yeah man you definitely did get found by the giant snake (laughs) that section i won't spoil it but that section has a lot of really clever like storytelling in the world design yeah it reminds me a lot i won't spoil this either but you know what it is if you've seen it there's a sequence in uh mad max fury road where they pass through an area and then there's a revelation of what that area is and it hits you like a ton of bricks oh yeah because like as a viewer you like saw it and felt a way about it but you didn't make the connection of like what that place was Mm -hmm. this game does that too in certain moments and i think what's like you you mentioned 
Elden Ring and mentioned like the dire state of the world. I, I, I do think there's also a lot of uh, Yorha for the glory of mankind energy going on here, because I guess to, to touch on the story a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we haven't talked about the story at all yet. The essential premise is there are two warring factions that are kind of battling on autopilot. You're not even given a reason as to why they're battling. And honestly, I imagine they probably don't know what started the conflict either. But what they do know is that they need to kill to survive. So both factions have like ingrained in them what they call a flame clock, or at least uh, one side does, the side you start on. Whenever they take any life, uh, that clock kind of refills in their eye. And that's like how much time they have to live. But they also technically only live for, I think what they call 10 cycles. Terms. Terms. 10 terms. Which equates to, I think, 10 years. So it's kind of weird. It's similar, if you are a fan of Deep Space Nine, uh, it's similar (laughs) to the Gem Hadar, which are an alien race that are essentially like tank bred to be soldiers. So like there's there's an episode of Deep Space Nine where they find this baby and then like in a week, it's like a 12 year old. And then in another week, it's like a fully grown adult. Yeah. And it's sort of pre-programmed to be a soldier. That's all it knows. It's all it wants to do. Mm-hmm. And and that show explores that whole thing and why it's maybe not a good idea. But here it's very similar. The difference between the Jem'Hadar and, and the factions here is like they do feel, they do think they have friendships, like they feel emotions, but their whole society is just be a good soldier. And if you were like the best of the best, you get to die in front of everyone at a thing called the homecoming. Yeah. The queen will kill you in front of everybody. And won't that be right. awesome? <laughs> Uh, it also similar if you're a fan of Logan's Run, a very cheesy uh, 60s sci-fi. That whole premise is uh, it's a society where once you turn 30, you're quote unquote renewed and it's it just killing you in public, basically. Mm-hmm. But the society doesn't know that you can live past that. Similar here. So really surreal. And there's already a lot of dramatic irony of like we as an audience know this is not good. Yeah. And the characters are all pretty brainwashed. Even the lead who is sort of like he's the one that questions it earliest is he's still buying into it. His yeah. job is is an offseer, and what that means is that when soldiers pass like, after a battle, he'll play a melody on the flute, and that allows the souls to move on. Very similar if you play FF10, Yuna, right. she's this person who like kind of comforts the spirits of the dead to move on, otherwise they become monsters. Right. And it, it, I, I don't know if they become monsters, but it's not good if, if their souls are just like angry and stagnant and early on i won't spoil the scene because even though it's the first scene it's really effective like it's just really good storytelling even though it's a cut scene like it's edited and constructed in a way that will really like it's like an immediate gut punch Mm -hmm. i i think it's one of the strongest openings of a video game i've seen in a long time but one thing that our protagonist or i guess our de facto protagonist it's more of an ensemble story at this point but noah's initially the lead and as the offseer he kind of stirs controversy because he also plays for the enemy so like no matter you know if he sees a dead right. body he just does and a weaker script would have him be like this isn't right you know i must also but he's just like well i'm an offseer this is like what i'm supposed to do i might as well do it right for everybody yeah so like there's a seed of of doubt but like consciously he's like well i'm not I'm just doing my job still. And we're getting a sense of like who these characters are 
but they're all so brainwashed. It's so hard to watch. You know, you you kind of want in your heart of hearts like that turn to happen faster. Yeah. And they really torture you with how long it takes. <laughs> uh, and I think that's better writing because, of course, they would. Like they, even, even upon seeing like the moment where they see that the world doesn't have to be this way, mm-hmm. it takes them a long time to really digest that. I don't even know if they fully have even where I am in the game. Yeah. Like, and I think that that that's a really great tool to like have an arc like these characters all start somewhere and they're clearly growing somewhere else and like you have an idea of where they want to go but like the journey there is already like very grounded emotionally Mm -hmm. i think that having that flip happen too soon could have actually damaged the storytelling yeah i agree but yeah so noah is the offseer you meet his two friends, Lands and Uni, and there are these constant flashbacks to like when they were really young kids that are just heartbreaking. Yeah. And they're full of these really quick cuts. Like Lands, I mentioned, he's the tank, he's the hothead, he's got the world's coolest jacket. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he dives into combat. He's like kind of the, the jock of the group, but very lovable. And there's just a quick shot, like, you know, something happens and, and they do a quick shot of them running a scrimmage as kids and he's just like crying like in the middle of battle and they're like stop crying we gotta go like it's just this quick fleeting moment but like yeah just seeing him as a kid be the one who can't stop crying and it's very like it's not even in that scene it's just so real like if you've been a parent or a teacher or like a camp counselor like i remember when i was a camp counselor kids would just start crying randomly you know <laughs> yeah. and it's like it's so it's so tragic to see like the the hothead of the group be this like really vulnerable kid even someone and it also kind of shows you the resilience of of humanity here because even when these kids are bred to be soldiers they still feel right they still they still have a heart and and a reaction to what's happened even though they're like drilled to think otherwise and the beginning is full of moments like that full of like really quick cuts and visual storytelling that aid a moment without explicitly saying it which is rare to find in games i think games while being a visual medium rpgs tend to like to explain things and this game has shown pretty tremendous restraint in like letting a moment sit with you visually before they say anything about it yeah i think it's so well done yeah i I think this is one of those situations where this game's first hour so makes a case for this game being 100 hours yeah (laughs) there are so there are so few games that i think should actually be this long to be perfectly frank um and this is not just me speaking as like somebody who co-host a video game podcast every week and is like trying to play a bunch of stuff and and talk about it on here but this is more just like i think at a certain point games can overstay their welcome and 100 hours is a huge asking time and and my confidence in most people on planet earth to tell a cohesive 100 hour story i don't have a lot of confidence to be perfectly frank but this first hour is so beautifully paced and so like clockworkingly beautiful that that I I immediately was like I would do this hour 100 times like if you if you <laughs> yeah. if the yeah. next 99 of these were this strong I'm so on board and obviously the case is that it's not that because they're not going to have you sit down for 45 minutes of cutscenes every hour that's not how the game works there's going to be a lot of ambiently running around the big open world and doing whatever you want which is also joyous and its own different way but you know the fact that this first hour gives you that premise gives you these three characters gives you everything you need to know about them i think in that first hour as you were saying before like i know more about these three people than i do about most rpg uh party members like 
10 to 15 hours into some games. And the fact that you sit so the the two warring factions are called agnes and kevis you are hanging out with noah and uni and lands and they're part of the agnes special forces team and you're just with them for about three hours of this game and i think that's such a purposeful and such a smart thing for them to do so the first time you show up against kevis people who i think it's actually flipped i think they're part of kevis are uh, they it doesn't matter yeah, yeah okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure either way uh, yeah regardless whatever is your side yeah whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever faction they're a part of just like living in their world for a little bit and knowing absolutely nothing about the opposing side i think is really is really smart the only thing you do know really just to double back on a point you were making earlier is that they have a flame clock and they seem to also have a queen because one of the first thing that happens in the in the opening the opening opening cutscene is you just see these two gigantic mech monster things fighting one another they both have flame clocks and they're both just sucking all of this life out of all of the dead on the battlefield into these flame clocks my read on this and i don't have an actual answer for this because i haven't explained it yet my read on that from that first sequence is that the idea of the flame clock is that you're filling the lifetime that the queen gets to rule. That's my theory, at least, is, is that what you're doing is actually just stealing life from others to give to the queen so she can continue to just rule forever. And that both sides are fighting for the queen and these people are just bred to essentially give their life up for the other queen, essentially. Yeah, there's definitely an evil party benefiting from never-ending war. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which yeah. is a little too close to home uh, in some, absolutely. <laughs> some moments in history. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I found all that to be really, really, really compelling. Um, once you, I don't want to say too much about it, but once you bring on the three other people in your party and you start to explore the world and you start to experience life from both sides of the conflict i think it gets even more interesting there is some stuff going on narratively that does give me a little bit of pause that you were also talking about in in a conversation we were having off the show there are some very villainous looking villains who love to stand under a spotlight and say like one cool quippy line and then you know seed their time for another cool very evil looking person in a different spotlight so they can say their quippy line and let me be clear yeah. The idea of masked villains mm-hmm. all communicating on a stage and they can only talk when there's a direct spotlight on them is like tailor made for me. So I love that on one hand. My worry is like, I feel like a common pitfall for just JRPGs in general is like, I think, you know, FF7 is a good example of this. Where like that mm-hmm. game is about really real stuff yeah. early on. Yeah. It's obviously a fantasy game the whole time, but I think the reason that game has had such longevity in like its audience and people talking about it and people loving it and returning to it and remaking it is that it's like about the horrors of capitalism and it's about this modern setting that exists despite that. And of course the story becomes more about Sephiroth and that I love I love Sephiroth that's fun that's cool but it does kind of lose a little bit of its punch it does become like another Final Fantasy game when really I think that opening in Midgar is I actually think why people remember the game so much yeah everything else is really fun but like that is the launching pad of the story and I I've played many other games that like Xenoblade Chronicles 3 for example is a game that despite being a, a fantasy setting I think is covering a lot of real emotion and like this Mm -hmm. setup is almost enough for me i kind of like i know enough i'm open to the twists coming if there are any because i imagine there will be it's 100 hours there's going to be one twist (laughs) but uh 
I don't need like, uh, you know, oh, this is actually all a dream of a planet that's conscious. And like, that's the final boss. Like sometimes you can actually really pull the rug by having the stakes kind of balloon. What happens is it speaks to lack of confidence in the story Mm -hmm. when suddenly the threat is almost like, I don't know what the opposite of Deus Ex Machina is, but like Final Fantasy is is very prone to this. So there's a sudden new bad guy that you never met before. And that's that's the reason you got to fight. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't want that to happen here. I have much more confidence in this game than others. Like I, I do think like I'm kind of on board. And honestly, even if it gets a little silly, I think that the opening here was strong enough that as long as it doesn't derail from the themes, I'm fine. My problem, not to say too much about it, but Tales of Arise is a game that you and I adored for yeah. the first like opening act of that game. And then it kind of lost its way. And I think, you know, it's still a great game. I'd still recommend it. It got me into a whole new series of RPGs that I'm really curious about the other Tales games. Uh, there's a lot to really love about Tales of Arise. But I think like narratively, it kind of just like plays its hand a little too early and then has to like backtrack from the points it was making in favor of continuing the story longer than it needs to be told. And then also, as it turned out, had like bad opinions about what the theme of that game was, which was like the most, that was the most upsetting thing. Imagine watching Les Mis and hearing the song One Day More and then Act 2 begins with Enjoy Ross being like, you know what? The monarchy has a point. And then the show ends. Yes. Uh, That is Tales of Arise for you but uh yeah i i think like seeing the villains on stage in the spotlight i'm like no don't be like from the moon and like that's the whole goal <laughs> uh there's a really good story here that despite being so grandiose feels really raw and real and emotional i mean even just the idea of like you know early on in the opening narration of that battle is like we're you know tank bred and forced to fight each other in ignorance that the world is also dying like the world itself right is losing its life and like that idea of like we are constantly in this never-ending battle while there's this existential threat of like the place we live on fading away but that's like i think you could you could draw parallels to to real life with that but that's like such a such a powerful like idea almost in like a mythological way where it's Mm -hmm. like i think Mm -hmm. the reason why we see stories and mythology echoed so much is they're really just like raw human ideas that can be applied to so many aspects of our life no matter when in history we're we're living yeah and i think not to say that this is like on par with like you know this is the icarus of jrpgs but i think that like <laughs> just that setup is enough is really what i'm trying to say i think like they kind of already gave me enough to work on for the next x hours yeah if it's like here's the setup now go like train and cook with your friends like i'm good to do that for for a long time you don't need to involve the moon in the plot here i'm good yeah i will say having played a little bit more without giving any specifics um i am a little bit more on board with uh the spotlight loving villains i'm glad because i want to be on board with them i want to be on board with they're also named after the alphabet i think they're all each like a letter of the alphabet. it seems that way i have not seen all 26 of them but i wonder if there are going to be 26 of them I mean, it's a hundred hours. There should be. You That's know? kind of that me, was kind of my thought, yeah, actually. Yeah, um, give me twenty six villains. I will also say, I think it's chapter two. Chapter two ends with like a big bombastic boss fight that I think you're gonna oh, cool. absolutely lose your mind over. I think you're really gonna love it. <laughs> Yeah, I just this is more this isn't even for the podcast It's more just for you, Steven. I just think like you're going to love that ending. Uh, It's really like Mitsuda going absolutely 
wild with the orchestra he's been given um it's like the the story getting like as big and bombastic as possible it really just feels like the end of like a really good anime arc like it feels like yeah they're they're like trying to tie up some loose ends and it turns out like this little conflict that you have been experiencing is just a small modicum of what is actually to come it's really it really sends off the opening in, in a really uh like I, I think I think satisfying way. That's awesome. And and just kind of like prepped me for what was to come and just got me excited about the the prospect of like I'm done with the tutorial. Not to say that they're not still introducing new mechanics to me because <laughs> they are. But it really felt like the the kind of end of this is the this is the premise. This is the prologue. Here's the actual story now. And I will say it's unfortunately, again, because they're they're tying so intrinsically the mechanics to the story. I can't tell you what the actual loop of the game is. And that's the most frustrating thing for me, at least recording this right now where we're at until you've played some more but the actual loop of the video game like the thing that you and the party are actively trying to do and will continue to do over and over again is such a cool idea for a video game and feels like something i've seen done a lot but not done this well and i'm very excited for you to know what the fuck i'm talking about uh, i can't wait because it's 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 a it's a really fun conceit but i i think you're right in just saying like Spending time with these kids, seeing how they grew up, seeing them slowly come to terms with the fact that, like, obviously the thing that you and I, the player, know is horribly amiss is horribly amiss and having them start to question that and one and question more things about their lives is is a really compelling way to start this game and it's something that i expected to happen much later and that's i think one of the reasons that i'm so confident in where it's going is because that could have been a situation where that realization that like hey maybe we shouldn't just be like fighting this war endlessly that could have happened 50 hours in and this could have been a really slow burn of a video game but for them to kind of come to terms with that so early on like within the first couple hours i think is just a sign that the story has like much larger ambitions than just war is bad because everyone knows that inherently so what is this game actually trying to tell me and i don't know what that is yet and i think it's gonna be if i had to just call my shot a a, a thousand yards away my hope amongst hopes is that like all good media, like all good fiction, all good writing, it's just a story about why we should be nice to one another. It's just a story about how cool falling in love is. That's my hope is that this all boils down to that. What I'm getting. And again, I'm earlier on and this is not a spoiler. This is just me picking up what the game is putting down. Yeah. But there's a, you know, one of the things you can do in the open world is you'll find husks of dead soldiers yeah. and you can see them off. You can play a song that lets them move on. And to me, this game is really focused on the idea of death, mm. not in a morbid way, but in like a, this is the third game in a loose trilogy. This is a conflict that is never ending. They say that the name of the world ironically stands for eternity and seemingly an evil queen that wants to rule forever. And I think that the game has this undercurrent of like, it might be better just to die and see what happens next. Mm. Not in like a giving up way, but in like a, this world might need to just like move on. Yeah, It's similar to the idea of like, I think a lot of Souls games, Elden Ring, Bloodborne, Dark Souls are often obsessed with this idea of like the horror of purgatory. Like so many, every character in a Souls game is like, this night used to be chill, but has been staring at his reflection for the last (laughs) 2000 years and is now a pig man with axes for hands. Uh (laughs) And I think that game, like 
you kind of find peace in beauty, not like in a nihilistic way. I'm yeah. struggling for the right words, but I think that there's like, there's a sense, I think your mission in all of those games is like, how does the world move on from this? Right. And I think Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is about that. It's about healing. It's about maybe less about death and more about moving on. Yeah. And what your legacy is. I think it's also really concerned with legacy because I think every character's goal is like, I want to be, I want to go to Valhalla. I want to. I want to live for 10 years so the queen can kill me. Yes. Exactly. And it's like, maybe instead of that being, I mean, there's even a point where like, you know, Lans is one of the characters who has the hardest time letting go. Mm Mm-hmm. And Noah has to be like, you can go to your homecoming. I'm not going to stop you. But like, is that really what you want your legacy to be? That you killed a bunch of guys. Right. And that's it. You know? Mm -hmm. And like, I think really like letting the character like yeah if you want to do that i'm not gonna get in your way but like you really got to think about like what do you actually want yeah and i think that's a really power even just that idea of like how do i want to live you know i think even in a less morbid way i think like we're all conditioned and told to live our lives a certain way and to proceed in a certain order Mm. and i think like a lot of us have learned that like just by nature of doing that, we're not going to get the expected results always. Like we really have to, at a certain point, like follow our own desires and take our own path and know that it's going to be unconventional yeah. and kind of relish that. This game is also kind of celebrating deviating from the course. It's like, you know, in the corniest way possible, like be yourself. But I yeah. think because the game is so dire, <laughs> this idea of like, yeah, be yourself, put on a new outfit. That's cool. It's, it means so much because of how little these characters have. Yeah, this is that's kind of what I mean. Like, again, this is this is first hour of the game shit that, that this started to percolate in my head. This is like while I'm recording my, my let's play of it. But there are moments where they flash back to these kids, you know, in their earliest training sections uh and and they're there's like a shitty like draco malfoy ass kid who's like just <laughs> like a real huge asshole uh you have this bit with like lands who is crying while doing this training exercise uh there's like this other kid who like seems to be not that great at being a soldier yet because he's like i don't know eight i don't i don't know how old they are in that <laughs> sequence but like obviously right. he's not very good at it yet there's like a lot of stuff going on and you can tell that they have this like really this intrinsic bond with one another you know this like really like they are soldiers but they're also very close friends and they and they want to be close and they want to be together forever and they want to very specifically like help each other get to homecoming like they all want yeah. to help each other get to that point where it's like we've been alive for 10 years and the queen's gonna kill us and be fucking sick it's all gonna happen at the same time <laughs> um and my thought in that moment is like they have the capacity for friendship they definitely have the capacity for something more and i don't even think they know what that is you know i don't i don't don't even think they have an understanding of of love as a concept and that actually gets back to the scene that you and i were talking about earlier yeah there's this moment where where you think that this game is going to get horny and weird and drop the ball and be disappointing and embarrassing because you go off and you do this whole long battle this whole quest it takes like an hour ish or something like that and you come back to the colony and uni is like oh cool let's go hit the baths and everybody goes and takes a bath together and it's like just this big like everyone in the colony is using the same bath it's like a co-ed thing everyone's in the same spot and uni and lands are both 
you know, sitting in the bath together. Noah joins them. And there's this kind of like unease, I would imagine, for most people as as the player. That's like th- this something about this is amiss, like something about this is off. It's very interesting that there's a situation where just like everyone is bathing openly with one another like this, which, you know, I know that this is, you know, a common practice in, in Japan for the most part. But even then, there's usually a divide there from a gender perspective. And in this case, it's all like completely out in the open. And there's this one moment when Uni and Lands both stand up because they're arguing over who did the best in the battle. They're like arguing over who is better at murdering the enemy forces. And it becomes clear in this moment. This is, this is, I think that bit where like, it's like, Oh man, is this game going to drop the ball? But no, it's like really purposefully using the idea of like nudity to illustrate this point that these fucking people are so brainwashed that they can't even see each other as like other bodies, other people, other, like other, other beings that there could be something with outside of just the ability to kill one another. Right. Exactly. There's no, there's no like lingering thought of like embarrassment or, or intimacy or interest. It's just like, it's just, I killed the most guys. Yes. (laughs) And you know, and I didn't want, I didn't want, the scene to end with lands blushing or, you know, like exactly right. someone's nose bleeding or something like I, that would have totally ruined the scene. And I think it was almost like a, it was almost like setting you up for that moment and showing like, no, like there is nothing else on these kids minds other than murder yes and i killed the most guys yeah uh, it was really powerful honestly and i, and I think i think it illustrates up to what point their capacity for caring for one another can can reach i think i think noah as a character obviously because he's an officer and because he's constantly playing the flute for the 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 dead of the enemy has a slightly larger capacity for like empathy and sympathy than them but he still doesn't have this idea in his head of like wouldn't it be cool to like fall in love and settle down and like whatever you know like none of them have ever thought that because the only thing they think is that when they turn 10 quote unquote they're gonna die and that's that's the only thing they know and that's that's really wild i mean it's really it's really well done um it's it's an extremely successful again this is all uh, still like the first hour ish uh it's just an extremely successful premise for a video game and it's so hard to not talk about more of what's happening here yeah um, because it really just gets like cooler and cooler and cooler the further you get and even just that idea like you mentioned like these characters all they are is all they know that is also like the cohesion of the game and the story progressing at the same point as you get more combat abilities and all that it's it's not even just in the combat but like as their world expands so does the game mm-hmm. and i think in some ways it almost feels like a deconstruction of archetype where like you know lands is the hothead tough yeah. guy but can he be more than that once he like knows that like his role in a party doesn't always have to be the guy that gets hit you know he can be something else yeah uh and like the game actually lets you do that i think the fact that like the story and the mechanics are so closely intertwined is so cool i always look for that in the game and i think it really is something that games can do unique to themselves and it's so cool to see this game so committed to that idea yeah one stray thought and this is also just a read of mine but i think it's kind of fun Speaking of uh, Mitsuda showing no restraint in the soundtrack, and th- <laughs> there are many other composers. I I don't know exactly like the number of musicians here, but I know of Mitsuda more directly. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I'm leaving anyone out. But the soundtrack is incredible, just across the board. Everyone who worked on it deserves <laughs> the best. The main battle theme that just plays when you're like hitting a rabbit, like it's just like the most yeah. 
yeah. like mundane yeah. battle is every instrument having a solo one after the other. It's like <laughs> flutes and pianos and like yeah. I literally think every instrument in that song gets a solo at some point. And to me, the feeling I got because you know, I mean, the flute is so directly tied to Noah and eventually Mio, another character. I'm like, I kind of saw the instruments in that song as the characters. You know, in this moment where they're all working together, it kind of feels like this like jam band of just like all these personalities clashing. I don't know who I would say is what instrument, but like, I love that idea that like, I felt that. Like, I felt like the music was actually corresponding to these characters. And one thing is like they yell the same thing a lot. You're going to hear a lot of like cheers for that and eat it. But I love it because it hits that note of what I want in Persona, but like the looking cool Joker. Like it just, mm-hmm. it adds a lot of charm and a lot of levity to what is otherwise a very dour place. And it also has a little bit of Dragon's Dogma energy with the pawns where like, while they do have kind of the catchphrases they'll yell, they'll also yell out like, oh, that's a rare item. Or like if Lands isn't pulling aggro enough, he'll be like, oh, I lost him. Yeah. So like there is helpful information happening there in, in spite of all the like cheers for that. You know, there's also like <laughs> there's also information being given to the player. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, I feel like we could talk about this game for like another hour. <laughs> we probably will. I mean, this if you can already tell, I actually forgot we were recording. That's how into this conversation I was. I'm like, oh, yeah. people are going to listen to this. Yeah. I, I just think like maybe I should have said this earlier, but I, I think I should say this. I don't think this is like the easiest game to get into. Yeah. You know, like, I I don't think this is like, you know, the beginner's RPG. I don't know if like, I think there's a little bit maybe too much complexity for me to just like blanket recommend this to people. But if you have an understanding or a desire to experience the things that we're talking about, it is worth investing the time to get to that point, like to feel proficient enough that you can then continue to play it because it, it is extremely worth it so far. There are some helpful things here and there that I, I, I think um, are just like wonderful quality of life tweaks from like a genre perspective, just like, for example, the ability to um, at any time. And honestly, I just toggled it on at the beginning when they told me about it and haven't turned it off since, but you can turn on kind of like a, a line in the, in, in front of you that will just show you to your destination wherever you need to go and what i love about this specifically is it's not just showing you how to get from point a to point b but the the dialogue box the tutorial box that shows up when it teaches you about this like breadcrumb trail says specifically this is not the best route this is the quickest route it might bring you to places that you should not go but it is going to be the fastest way from point a to point b like it might bring you directly in the way of an enemy that is like 50 levels above where you're at just to be clear like you're gonna need to do a little bit of exploration here and there but it will show you generally how to get to where you're trying to go stuff like that where it's like we're helping you out but we're not taking we're not taking your hands completely off the wheel i think is really smart and i feel like that kind of intentionality is given to like pretty much every mechanic i've seen with the exception of one which is one i mentioned earlier about xenoblade chronicles one where for some reason again they have the uh, the sphere grid of every person you've ever talked to and how they're related <laughs> to one another. And I don't understand the utility behind it yet because it'll just be like, 
this person's mad at this person. And like, I don't know how that helps me or why that's there. Um, <laughs> but it is yeah. funny to look at sometimes. Yeah. Every once in a while I open it and I'm like, what's Colony 9 looking like? And I, I'm just like, oh man, he hates that guy, huh? That's interesting. All right, well. That reminds that. me, in, uh, in Guilty Gear Strive, the only way to experience whatever that game's story was is either watching like a four-hour film in the game <laughs> or they had a flow chart of yeah. events in the game's world and it would have like soul bad guy is it's complicated with axel oh and my like, god like all these connections it was you like ended up with more questions than answers like what does that mean like that's awesome yeah i i, I read through the whole thing and i could not tell you what's going on in that game <laughs> That's how it should uh, be. But I mean, that's the that's the beauty of Guilty Gear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I mean, this is a game that I imagine we will eventually do some kind of spoiler episode or maybe even a bonus at some point if it keeps doing what it's doing. You know, again, there's the potential for it to fall off course. And like, honestly, even if it does, I've had such a great time with the opening. I would at least walk away with that, you know? Yeah. Um, absolutely. So like. But I, I do have confidence in where it's going. And I'm also glad, like, you know, I don't know if, if I'm going to fully go back and try one and two, but I do feel like I'm getting what people loved about this series. Totally. In century. Yeah, me you too. Know, I think like the things that I've been told, I think I'm like understanding why Xenoblade Chronicles has such a devoted following and why Xeno as a series is such a devoted following. I do want to play Xeno Gears. I'll tell you that much. Um, More power to you. Good luck with that. <laughs> We'll see. I'll report back. That might be something I try and never bring up again. Um, <laughs> but uh, with that, do you want to wrap up? Yeah, I think we should or else this won't stop. Um, show some restraint for once. Yeah, show some restraint for once. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, as we say every week, it is so wonderful that anybody listens to this at all. It's it's honestly it's so fun to be able to do this. And I know we say that constantly, but it really is. It is so fun to be able to do this every week. So so yeah. thank you all for uh, enabling us uh, to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, this is like if if we didn't have this show to like get out our love for this game, I think you and I would have just bought a van and just like <laughs> shouted it out to anyone nearby like the the cohesion between mechanical and narrative storytelling it was like a doppler effect like whatever the opposite of an ice cream truck is just getting yeah. takes about the third entry of a beloved cult hit yeah some be like what is that i don't know it's, it's two, <laughs> two guys i think trying to start a religion i'm i'm not really sure yeah, they could have had a show more power to them um <laughs> But you're right. I mean, I I, I love doing the show. I'm, I'm, it's so weird that it's been four years. Yeah. You bringing up like when you brought up Xenoblade Chronicles 2 to the show was a distant memory. But it also time is an illusion at this point. Yeah. Um, it's so wild to not remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you like the show, uh, Into the Cast Online is the hub for everything. Places to listen links to our patreon uh, like we've said before if we hit our two thousand dollar goal per month we will do a low-key version of uh, similar to what we did with the season premiere for the nintendo ds we'll do that for the 3ds 
So we're getting close. Again, no rush with that. We just thought it'd be fun to have a goal of some kind and to yeah. to throw kind of like a celebration. And honestly, like the 3DS, com- as evidenced by this episode, 3DS stuff comes up a lot anyway. But I think it'd be a lot of fun for us to like really look a little bit closer at the library. Not quite to the same degree of preparation of like playing 150 games, but like we've already kind of started preparing for that in case, you know, we reach the goal. So that's happening. But again, as always, don't back the Patreon if it puts you in any financial strain. We also understand if you have to pull at any time. If you do find yourself needing to pull your support, but you want to resubscribe later, you can always do that. You'll regain access to the RSS feed of Patreon episodes as well as the Airtable um, and other perks as well. Uh, that's about it. I'm very excited to play some Paper Mario for our bonus this month. Yeah. It actually will be a really nice chaser to Xenoblade Chronicles 3 because I think <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's a, it's a pretty intense game. It, it is and it isn't. I feel like some of the moment to moment stuff feels light and cheery and then you get to a story beat and you're like, oh, Paper Mario, always a good time. It's always a cool time. You know what you're getting into. <laughs> Uh, that's going to be happening at the end of the month. We're recording that with our editor and close friend, AJ. Very excited to have them join us Yes, for that one. I did pick up a bunch of games recently. I, I did actually sign up for uh, Sony's version of Game Pass, and I downloaded Res Infinite and XCOM 2. I've never played XCOM before. I'm very curious about that series. I've overall. also not played XCOM 2. Maybe I'll download that too. We could talk yeah. about that. That'd be fun. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And then Res, I, I have played many times and, and uh, love dearly, but I never played Res Infinite, which is essentially a HD port of the original and like a new area that's meant to be played in VR. But you can't play it without VR. I started playing it without VR and I was like, this would be better in VR. So I'm holding off for now, but I did replay all of Res and I'll probably talk about that at some point soon. And I also got Live Alive, but I got immediately bumped by Xenoblade Chronicles. Yeah. And I really want to give that game time and I'm sure we'll bring it up uh, soon. I just I, I really want to give it like a proper spotlight rather than just like a quick segment. So we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. It's so funny that for so long, everyone's been saying it's really weird that Nintendo is releasing Live Alive and Xenoblade Chronicles 3 back to back because they're like so, so similar in terms of the market that they're trying to go for. Like there's going to yeah. be a lot of overlap. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm interested in Live Alive and I'm not interested in Xenoblade. And here I am. <laughs> here i am buying a van to yell about lands <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what else have I, I i played the the octopath traveler mobile game um it's fine i kind of just wish they ported octopath traveler to mobile that's kind of how i yeah. felt playing it yeah uh, that's my whole spiel on that um i started marvel's avengers from the top i'll say this about marvel's avengers <laughs> okay you know it's a it's a game that has this live service element to it but it's available on game pass and it's also on the playstation plus thing and you know i'm not just saying this because i'm a marvel employee anything i say and do does not reflect the views of my employer etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know just to say a very positive thing about that game i love that game's campaign i think it is so cool it's so fun and i really love specifically hot on the heels of Ms. Marvel wrapping up on Disney Plus. Yeah. Season one of that. I've mentioned it, I think, on and off the show before, but if it wasn't for Kamala Khan and Ms. Marvel as a character, I probably wouldn't be working at Marvel. I don't think I would be as interested in working for the company, if not for that character. Um, Having a whole video game launch where she is the star of that game was such a cool move and is so fun. And it's so cool to like run around as Kamala and in Big In and like stretch your arm out and like, yes, essentially like 
do kind of platforming sections where you're, you're like using a grappling hook like Nathan Drake would, but it's like Kamala's hand because she can stretch it out yes. like Mr. Fantastic. Like that is so fun. That that game has some really interesting ideas and some really cool stuff going on in that single player mode and is totally worth playing, um, especially like if you played Guardians and you like that, like go back and check out Avengers. Um, you don't have to do the live service stuff. You honestly sold me because I honestly I also love Kamala Khan. Like I don't I don't really read a ton of superhero stuff, but I do read yeah. like all the Spider People and Miss Marvel. And I will say too, the only one of the few reasons I have a ton of Jersey pride is because of Kamala, mm. uh, Jersey City <laughs> resident. Yeah. I, I love seeing the Jersey representation. Miss Marvel is incredible. Honestly, even if you're not into superheroes, it's worth reading at the very least the first volume of Miss Marvel. Yeah, it's awesome. like such a good comic, regardless of genre. Uh, it's just such a great read. Yeah, um, it's, it's so awesome. Would recommend a like, yeah. freezing take. But I would recommend <laughs> it's been long enough since it came out. I think it's worth reminding people that it's good. Yeah. But anyway, that's just a thing. I, I don't know. I dumped like another 10 hours of that game again. I don't know why I decided <laughs> to start it from the beginning, but I was like, I just really feel like doing this again. And uh, it's been fun. Hell yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's it for me. I, I think we started wrapping up a long time ago. So I'll say that my name is Brendan Bigley. <laughs> and I'll also say that you can find me on the Internet at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. Brendan, I got... Whoa, Brendan. Oh my god. <laughs> Cursed. Do you want to start over? Yeah, sure. That sounds great.